Good afternoon. This is Mrs. Reynolds, and I am recording the podcast for the Biology 101 Section A and Section B study guide for the first exam of the quarter, and this is going to cover chapters one and two. It covers all of chapter one and most of chapter two up to the macromolecules. The macromolecules will be covered in the next exam. So for this exam, you're gonna be focusing on both chapters one and two, starting with the levels of the organization of life. So you need to make sure that you study and know in order of complexity, the levels of the organization of life, beginning with the atom. Atoms are the lowest level. They are the, smart, the smallest part of an element that cannot be broken down any further chemically. Molecules are the next level. They are two or more atoms bonded together. One of the examples is the oxygen molecule. The other is water, which is H2O. So these are examples of molecules. The next level is the level of the cell. And the cell is the level at which things are considered to be alive and it is the fundamental unit of life. Cells come together to form tissues, which are cells that are similar and they have a common structure and function. Those tissues then come together and build to form organs. Organs are tissues that function together for a specific task. Organ systems are several organs functioning together to complete a common task. So, for example, your central nervous system works together with your musculoskeletal system. It sends the signals that prompt that musculoskeletal system to move and to function. So, those are two organ systems that work together to perform movement, which is a common function. The next level is an organism. Organism is the full body. We, as humans, are organisms. We are complex individuals that function to perform tasks, and so we are organisms. Organisms that interbreed are referred to as species. So as humans, we are the human species. We are the um, group that functions together and interbreeds a group of similar interbreeding organisms. The next level is the population. Population are interacting species. And then you've got communities, which are next, which are interacting populations of the same species in a particular area. You then have the ecosystem. Ecosystems involve the organisms living in them plus the environment. So you have different types of ecosystems. There's the desert ecosystem, the marine, which is saltwater, freshwater ecosystems, even a drop of pond water in and of itself is an ecosystem. Uh, Rainforest, deciduous forests, these are all examples of ecosystems. Ecosystems all together, all the ecosystems on earth form the biosphere of the earth. The biosphere includes everything on the earth, water, land, all the organisms, plus the atmosphere. It is the highest level and it involves all the ecosystems on the planet. The term biology, bio is life and ology is the study of. So biology is defined as the study of life. 
Science is defined as a way of knowing about the natural world. It is performing observations and just a curiosity about the world around you. Atoms are in chapter two. Um, the whole of chapter two is talking about biochemistry. All the biochemical reactions that happen in the body are summed up as metabolism. But it all starts with atoms, which again are the smallest unit of an element that cannot be broken down any further by chemical means. You need to know the structure of an atom. An atom has a central core and the core contains protons and neutrons and the electrons spin around the nucleus in something called a valence shell. The valence shells with the electrons determine the reactivity of the atom or the element. Protons are positively charged, so I want you to think and remember that P for protons is positive. Be like a proton, be positive. Um, be like a neutron, be neutral. They have no charge at all. So typically an uncharged atom, those are counteracting each other and giving the atom a neutral charge. When you have the same amount of protons and neutrons in the central core, they are spun around by electrons and the electrons have a negative charge. They are a lot smaller and so they're able to whiz around the nucleus a lot faster of that atom. These are designed on the periodic table as elements and they're put in order of reactivity and they are designed based on columns and rows having to do with their reactivity and their charges and their similar properties which is referred to as periodicity. Um, the atomic number is the number of protons that are in the atom in the central core. The atomic mass is the number of protons plus the number of neutrons. And so you could calculate that um, by looking at each element on the periodic table and reading about how many protons and neutrons it has in order to find out that atomic mass. The mass number is the sum of all of the AMUs, which includes your protons, neutrons, and electrons. But electrons are so lightweight, they really don't add to the weight of the atom, so they don't really tend to count. Um, but the, that mass number includes everything. So you could figure out the mass number by adding or subtracting different numbers of protons or neutrons present in the center of the atom. The atomic symbol is the letter that you see that is represented on the square of the periodic table. Every symbol or every element has a symbol. For instance, carbon is C, hydrogen is H, helium is HE, and sodium is Na. It comes from the Latin word natrium, which means sodium, and so that's how it gets its name. Most of them are named after either their Latin term or their Greek term or meaning, or for the last name of the scientist who discovered them or invented them, because some of the scientists came up with some of the elements by synthesizing or by performing experiments where they synthesized and made new elements. 
The first 92 elements though are naturally occurring elements, so you need to know that. You need to know that the human body is made up of four major elements. The In the neutral atom, the number of protons always equals the number of neutrons. If the atom gains a charge, it is now referred to as an ion, I-O-N. Cations are positively charged atoms. Anions are, or anions are negatively charged atoms. Molecules are two or more elements that are joined together through the sharing of electrons. Elements are the basic building block of matter that cannot be broken down by any further means. And again, you'll see them represented on the periodic table of elements. Isotopes are different because they have a different number of neutrons, but they have the same number of protons in their central core. Radioactive isotopes are unique in that they are unstable though, and they emit radiation when they decay. Every one of them has a different half-life, which is how they decay and the time it takes them to decay. And in the process, they release radiation. Some of these are used in medicine as medical tracers. So when you see that term tracer, this is a radioactive isotope. It's typically an element listed with a number. And fluoride, glucose, these are some of the ones that are commonly used. Carbon, they are going to be used as tracers because they have the ability to produce images that can show cancer or dysfunctioning tissues such as thyroid disorder, um, gland disorders. They take up the glucose and then they produce a picture on a computerized image that can be translated by a computer software program that can aid in the diagnosis of cancer and other health issues. So this is something very practical in medicine that you will either directly or indirectly come into contact with in your career field. So that's a real world example. So you'll find these mo mostly in PET scans, which is why they produce such colorful images and they aid in things like the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease in the brain, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease caused by prions, and they are also used to treat patients who have certain types of cancer with radiation therapy. There are benefits, both positive and negative effects that radiation has on humans. Humans, again, use radiation therapy for cancers, which is a benefit, but on the other hand, it does put you at higher risk for other types of cancers, which is a negative impact. Um, another positive impact is the radiation of food. Mail is irradiated. Some blood products are irradiated to prevent allergic reactions in people who are sensitive to some of the proteins present in certain components of blood for transfusion. It is used to sterilize some types of medical equipment, laboratory equipment, and surfaces by using certain types of UV. Um, a harm, though, is that it can cause radiation burns and poisoning, and some of the radiation types, such as that coming from the sun, can cause mutations to cells, which can transform them into cancer. So again, radiation has both benefits 
positive impacts and harmful negative ones as well. Make sure that you study in chapter one the three domains of life and the four kingdoms. Again, you've got three major domains, which are domain bacteria, domain archaea, and domain eukaryota or eukarya. The domain eukaryote has four major kingdoms. These are kingdom fungi, kingdom plantae or plants, kingdom protozoans, and kingdom animalia, which is the animal cells, plant, um, human cells, and that sort of thing. So the domain bacteria and domain archaea both have kingdom prokaryote. And these do not have a true nucleus like the eukaryote. U is true. They have a true nucleus. Pro is before. They do not have a nucleus. They just have a nucleoid area where some of the genetic information is found. The domain archaea are extremophiles. These are all things that you would find in very, very extreme conditions such as extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme pressure, extreme saltiness. Uh, Halophiles love salt, so you'd find them in the Great Salt Lake and the Dead Sea. Thermophiles love heat, so you'll find them in the thermal vents of the ocean, volcanoes, the beautiful hot springs at Yellowstone National Park. Cryophiles and psychrophiles love ice, so you're going to find them in places like Antarctica, Greenland, and glaciers in the ice and methanophiles love methane. You'll find them in swamps. They're found in the cow guts that produce cow gas. Um, you will see the barophiles. They love pressure, so they're found at the bottom of the ocean. They can withstand a lot of pressure. Halophiles are the ones that love the salt, so you'll find them in the salty places. Rusticles digest rust and are responsible for the orange-brown color of rust. So you will find them in the outskirts of some of the hot springs in uh, Yellowstone National Park. You'll find them on the sunken Titanic. You'll find them in some of the areas of caves where they're able to digest iron. And it is the iron in soil that they're digesting that produces that sort of rust orange color. The steps of the scientific method are another thing that you need to know. Make sure that you know them in order. Make sure that you could list those steps and describe them. Describe them means to list their definition. So observation is a step and that is defined as using your senses to make observations about the world around you. This would include signs and symptoms. Observations can be both subjective, which is based on personal experience and opinion, and objective, which is based on facts, and this is logical. So, um, objective are supported by factual information. Hypothesis is the next step. This is where you make a prediction or a predicted outcome or an educated guess, a tentative explanation for a natural event about what you think may happen. It needs to be testable. It needs to be proven correct or incorrect. And it will either be supported or unsupported. You can have more than one. You can modify it. You can go right back to it and create a new one. 
it is just kind of a starting point based on your initial observations and questions. The third step is the experiment. The experiment involves tests. This could be scientific tests in the lab or actual lab tests in um, the, the medical clinical lab setting. I am a microbiologist and medical lab scientist in addition to teaching, so when I'm working at the, the Lexington Medical Center Microbiology Lab, that's what I'm doing is performing all kinds of tests to aid in the diagnosis of bacterial and viral and protozoan and fungal infections. So the experiment or the tests is the step of logical procedures that you go through. You have control groups. In the clinical lab setting, you have positive and negative controls. These are known so that you have something to compare it to. But in your career as a nurse, you will probably experience or see or hear about clinical trials. And this involves, um, this is testing different medications and things with test groups and control groups to see if a medication is effective. The test group is exposed to the variable. A variable can be the brand, the type, the amount. It could be time. It can be temperature. It can be a substance or a reagent. It can be a number of different things, but the variable is something that you can change and that you can compare results with. The control group is not exposed to the variable. They are the one that you are comparing against. So they, usually things are known and it's not exposed to that variable. A placebo is something that is given to make the person think that they are receiving the same treatment or the same medication and this eliminates bias, which is personal experience um, or judgment that may cloud your view of the type of medication. And so this is designed to be, it's a sugar pill basically, it doesn't really have medication in it, but it's designed to make the person think that they are taking medication to see if this is really something that is effective or not. In a double blind study, this is where the placebo is usually given. This is where neither the administrator nor the test group participants realize or are aware of whether or not they are receiving the actual treatment medication or a placebo. So that's double blind because neither one of them knows. In a single blind study, the administrator usually knows which one is the placebo and which one isn't and the test group doesn't usually know. But in the double blind, neither one of them knows. So that's the difference between the two. The next step is, or the next term that goes within this experiment step is the variables. You really only want to change one variable at a time. That way you can know if it is having an effect or not. Um, but you can have multiple things that you're testing. Like I said, time, temperature, substances, amount, uh, reagent, those are all variables. They're the things that you can change. Uh, also in scientific and medical lab experiments, model organisms are often used. Sometimes these are living organisms or, or fruit flies are studied or rats in some places, for example. 
Um, and a lot of places just use the computer software, computer simulations for that testing. And that's what we'll mainly be using here. If you're doing simulations on Connect, that's the type you'll be using. The next step after you perform your tests and experiments is the data analysis. Data is, the, is your results, it's your information. And data is put on a line graph, a bar graph, or a pie chart so that you can compare results, compare your information, and it is a statistical view put as a visual to help people understand and see those results and compare them. Line graphs contain moving or changing data, and it is a combination of at least two points that you are comparing two different things or two different quantities on that graph. You have a horizontal x-axis and a vertical, which is up and down, y-axis. And this is where you're going to plot your information. The x-axis or the horizontal plotting is going to be your experimental variable, whereas the y-axis, the vertical, up and down, is going to be where you put your result. The standard deviation or standard error, this is an acronym of SD. This is a bar that goes above the bar graph or line graph that tells how uncertain a particular value is. This is represented by bars above or below on the bar graph and it can tell you the probability value of P, the possibility that results are due to chance or some other factor due than the experimental variable. If it's low, the results are significant. If it is less than 5%, this is acceptable. And this is something that's used and monitored by all lab supervisors in the clinical lab setting. This is their role is to create these reports, to analyze these reports and data, and to make sure that the um, controls are working properly before patient results are put out and to make sure that, especially in chemistry, that the results and the probability value are less than 5% in their studies. Uh, anytime they incorporate a new test or a new piece of equipment, this has to be done 20 times in a row before they can accept this new test and put it into practice. The lower the p-value, the more accurate the results are and less due to chance. The next step is the results. This is your data, your outcome. This is what proves or disproves the hypothesis. This is what is published in scientific publications, nursing journals, medical lab science journals, the NIH, the CDC, the World Health Organization, .gov, .edu, and .org websites, which are all credible and reliable. Also in your hospital or clinics, LIS, laboratory information system computers. Less reliable, though, are going to be wikis like Wikipedia, .com sites, .net, secondary sources, and sales websites. So you want to try to avoid those if possible. It's important that results must be repeatable and consistent. The last step is your conclusion. This is your determination about whether the hypothesis is supported or not based on data and facts. Once you figure that out, um, sometimes you can go to the theory, scientific theory, which is next. This is broader than the hypothesis. It is more widely accepted and a more widely accepted explanation for how the world works. 
It tends to be more accepted as fact among scientists. It's neither proven nor disproven, but it has been more consistent over time. The theory of evolution is considered the unifying concept of biology. And there are also theories such as the theory of germ disease and the cell theory. This is part B of the study guide. I had to push pause. So this is the second half of the study guide for exam one for biology 101, section A and B for the first exam over chapters one and two. This next section talks about ulcers. The cause of stomach ulcers is Helicobacter pylori, which is a spirochete spirilla-shaped bacterium that is also linked to stomach cancer. The next section is about the properties of water. Water is H2O. Water molecules are held together with other water molecules by hydrogen bonds between them. And this is represented by dotted lines when you see this on a chart or an image. The individual H2O molecule, however, is held together by covalent bonds that share electrons as both hydrogen molecules share pairs of electrons with the oxygen molecule. These are covalent. Think of C, covalent is sharing or cooperative. So those bonds are sharing electrons. Also, the properties of water. All living organisms are about 70 to 90% water. Water has a high heat capacity. Water has a high heat of evaporation. Water is the perfect aqueous solvent. In a solution, water is the solvent, the solid is the solute, and the mixture is the solution. Molecules that can attract water are hydrophilic, water-loving, and polar. Polarity means that the electrons are not shared equally because the electrons spend more time circling the oxygen molecule, creating a partial negative charge Whereas hydrogen has a partial positive charge, enabling hydrogen bonds represented by dotted lines to form temporarily between the water molecules. Molecules that can repel water, like oil, are hydrophobic, water-fearing, and non-polar. They do not interact well with water. This is why oil separates from water. Water molecules are cohesive. This means that they stick together to form droplets. So water molecules are cohesive. They stick together to form droplets. They are also adhesive. This means that they stick to surfaces like cars, freshly waxed cars, spider webs, blades of grass, your hair, the faucet. So um, they are adhesive means sticky. So think of sticky tape, scotch tape. They stick to surfaces. Water is less dense when frozen than liquid. This is why ice floats in water. Ice floats, it expands, and the molecules and bonds are further apart from each other. Liquid water is more dense. So liquid water is responsible for sinking ships, um, for causing things to sink to the bottom. Things that are more buoyant like ice or salt will float to the top of water and water has surface tension when, which makes it appear like it's bending this is why paper clips can float on the surface and it looks like the water is bending or why water bugs sit on top of the surface and it looks like they're bending the water it's due to water's surface tension 
The pH scale is a scale that determines the acidity and alkalinity of a substance, and it ranges from 0 to 14. Neutral is 7.0. Acidic is less than 7. It releases excess hydrogen ions in a solution. Basic or alkaline substances are greater than 7 on the pH scale, so that's going to be greater than 7 and up to 14. They release excess hydroxide, which is OH negative ions in solution. Buffers like Alka-Seltzer, Rolaids, Tums, Milk of Magnesia, these are substances designed to bring a substance closer to neutral, closer to 7, because they accept excess hydrogen ions and excess hydroxide ions, so they strive to keep the pH within normal limits. Each unit or number on the pH scale is about 10 times more than the previous unit. So if you have a pH of 10, it is 10 times more acidic or 10 times more basic than its previous unit. The pH of blood ranges from 7.35 to 7.45. Anything less than that puts a person in metabolic or respiratory acidosis. Anything higher than that puts a person in metabolic or respiratory alkalosis. NaCl is sodium chloride. It is a salt. It dissolves in water easily. It is what you see in IV solutions, the sodium chloride solutions. Sodium is positively charged. Chloride is negatively charged. Na is the symbol for natrium, the Latin symbol, which is sodium. And Cl is the symbol for chloride. These form as the result of ionic bonds in which opposite charges attract. They give and take electrons. So that is an ionic bond. It's ironic, it's opposite, and it's the giving and taking of electrons. The term adaptation means changes or helpful mutations that enable an organism to live in a changing environment or to blend in for survival. Examples include fish scales, that enable them to be adapted to breathe underwater. Stick bugs and leaf bugs, which are katydids because they match their environment. Chameleons, which are a type of lizard that change color depending on their environment. You also have a lot of um, different octopi, which is the plural for octopus, that form rings and squid. They change colors in their environment and they do this in order to blend in for their survival. Another form of adaptation is a form of natural selection called antibiotic resistance. This is due to bacterial changes and mutations that enhance their ability to survive antibiotics and pressure and other things in the human body and enable them to become stronger and more virulent and more pathogenic in a very short amount of time. Science is defined as a way of knowing about the natural world. The general public needs to have an understanding of science in order to make informed decisions about our future and about our world. You can apply technology to that. That is the application of scientific knowledge to the interests of humans, and everyone has the opportunity to be able to do that. Cells are listed as eukaryotes or prokaryotes. U is true because they have a true nucleus. It is membrane-bound. The DNA and genetics and chromosomes are in the middle. And then the prokaryotes and bacteria, pro means before nucleus. They do not have a true nucleus. 
They do have genetic information, but it is just in a central localized area in the cell. It is not bound or surrounded by a nuclear membrane. The term human growth and development, when you see that, growth is an increase in size and development is all of the changes that occur from the time of fertilization and continue through adulthood. So those growth spurts, um, as you develop, you can develop mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, so this is a whole body concept. And so that's the second half of what you should study for your test. Make sure that you have your study guide out along with your textbook because this information comes mostly from your textbook and somewhat from the PowerPoints. So I would definitely have your notes, highlight things, use your book, study the questions you answered in the back of your book, and everything is put together um, and you will be well prepared for your tests.